Hey, everybody, it's Saturday, December 18th, and you are listening to the Pure Capital Podcast. Today on the podcast, it is the third week of the month, uh, and in the third week of the month, we talk about capital markets. So today we're going to talk about markets. Um, specifically, we're going to do uh, kind of a high level while at the same time a deep dive dive into inflation, um, just what it means, what it is, how it's going to affect investments, how it's going to affect just people in, in general. Uh, you know, we, we've had um, a couple of big couple of big prints come out here. So CPI came out last uh, two Fridays ago, and then we had an FOMC meeting um, on Wednesday this week. And I just want to discuss some of the details of that, what that means for the future, what that means for inflation and what that means for, for investing. So James, I'm here always, as always with James Carnes. James, hop on, man. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm pumped to talk about the capital markets today. I think there's a lot going on. Um, you know, obviously just more kind of news coming out this week. And, uh, you know, I feel like every conversation I'm having, whether it's with family, friends, uh, even just people at the store or anything, everyone's talking about inflation. Everyone paid a lot of money for their turkey at Thanksgiving and they're feeling it even more at Christmas now with gifts and all these things. So I'm excited to cover, you know, some of the news and everything going on around. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely interesting. People are definitely starting to, um, to feel this, you know, so I, I want to just spend a little bit of time kind of digging into, to what it is, why I think it's happening, um, and what it's, what it really means. Uh, we want to remind everybody that this, uh, podcast is an informational podcast only. Um, if you, we do not give investment advice, uh, please go seek out professional investment, um, professionals, uh, just as a, a disclaimer out here before we jump into this conversation. We are going to get kind of, we're going to go high level. James is going to ask some, some good questions. Um, and we're going to, but we're at the, at the same time, we're going to try to give you guys a good kind of broad based understanding of what this, what this stuff is and why it's happening from, from our perspective. So, um, first off, let's just kind of dive into what's, uh, what inflation actually is this. Everybody's talking about it, you know, inflation, inflation, inflation. And I think everybody thinks that inflation is, you know, my, my prices are going up. Um, and in a lot of ways, so they're not wrong when they're thinking that, but it, it, it's a lot of different things that happen to result in, you know, consumer prices um, rising. And, and typically what, what we're talking about here when we talk about inflation is really it's an expansion of money supply. It's a devaluation of of uh, currency. Um, so typically through quantitative easing, you increase the money supply through fiscal easing, you increase the money supply, um, you circulate more money out there in the economy. Uh, then you have more money chasing off after the same amount of goods and services and uh, like simple supply and demand, right? When you have more capital that's chasing after a finite amount of goods and services, um, then you have prices increase. And, and that's usually how this manifests itself is increases in um, both asset prices and uh, consumer prices. Now, you know, historically speaking, I mean, like for the past, gosh, 40 years, um, we've seen very low inflation, despite the fact that we've had uh, some pretty, pretty major quantitative easing going on, uh, especially back in 2008. 
uh, during the great financial crisis. You know, there was a lot of QE that happened in that time frame, but we didn't see this big blast off in consumer prices. Uh, that being said, what we did see was a big lift in asset prices. So, you know, I, I don't think anybody can deny we've seen just this dramatic boom in asset prices over the past 40 years. Um, and I, I think that a lot of that has to do with that expansion of money supply. It just didn't hit. It didn't really hit because of the way that we did the did the QE. It didn't really hit the general consumer um, and get reflected in those consumer prices. Uh, now, I, I would I would make the argument that, you know, a lot of companies out there um, over the years have have shrank the size of their of their goods that they're selling you and reduced those uh, down charging the same price, which to me is inflation. Um, even though it's not anything that anybody depicts as inflation to me, it is inflation, right? You know, you're getting less for the same price and that's a, a devaluation of your currency or a, a reduction in your purchasing power. Um, now the difference between, in my mind, the difference between 2008 quantitative easing and now is first off um, when the pandemic hit uh, and we started doing QE we did an enormous amount of it we did tons and tons and tons times the amount that we did in 2008 so substantially more substantially more um, uh, bonds and mortgage-backed securities were purchased by uh, the Fed. Um, so it was just a, a massive increase from that standpoint um, this time around versus last time around. The second thing that happened is we passed a whole bunch of bills at the federal government that resulted in direct stimulus check payments to um, to everybody, to ordinary people, right? And that put an extreme, it put a massive amount of, of money into people's pockets that they could go and then instantly spend on goods and just expanded that money supply. So J James, what's, uh, I, I hit on a lot there real quick. I can, I can just keep rolling and rolling and rolling yeah. on the subject <laughs> because I'm passionate about it, but I'll, I'll let you jump in. I love it. What do you, what questions do you have right out of the gate here? I love it. Yeah. I, I, I a ton of questions, but the first one is in terms of because I know when I first started to like really try to dive deeper and understand, you know, how, what exactly is inflation and how is it affecting just, you know, the economy, all these things that affect everyday people. And I did start to run into the term like quantitative easing and, re, and all, you know, some of those terms. What like, can, give, give, can you give a high level view of like what that is and how it, it kind of affects inflation and, and like the Fed and kind of their strategy and why they do that? Maybe like, a little bit at high level, just what the Fed is too, and kind of their role in, in all this. Yeah. So, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of the best, like the most simple way to put this because you can get really complicated when it comes to what uh, quantitative easing actually like technically true blue is. Um, but probably the easiest way to put it is the, the federal reserve comes out and they're in control of, interest rates, they, they have a dual mandate, right? They're, they 
their technical job is to um, make sure that we have full employment and price stability. So they're they're supposed to ensure that we have stable prices, aka what they've put out there is you know inflation running at about two percent, um, and that we we fall in a full in a full employment realm. Um, Yeah. So on that real quick, the 2% uh, inflation you just mentioned, that's like a healthy form of inflation, right? Or is that not the right way to look at it? Like just like smaller amounts of inflation isn't necessarily bad, right? Or is that not the right way to look at it? That, I mean, that is the right way to look at it overall. You know, just as you like, we could have deep, deep discussions about whether inflation is good, bad or deflation is good, bad. Um, But just kind of standard, you know, common expectation is 2%. So it's, it, I think it's fair to say you have a healthy economy that's growing and expanding at a good rate when you have, when you're seeing 2% inflation and like, that's, that's the target. That's what you want is inflation at 2%. Um, and you know, where did that number technically come from? Honestly, it was pulled out of hat, but that's the benchmark. That's what we're looking at. That's what the (laughs) expectation is. Right. So you can kind of measure things around that. You know, if you're flying underneath 2% inflation, more than likely, you know, things aren't cooking the way that they should be cooking in the economy. Um, if you're over that, you're overheated or you have, you've got problems, you know, you expanded your money supply too fast um, or you have supply side problems. You know, you're not able to get, you're actually don't have as many goods and services as what you once did. Um, and that causes, you know, price increases as well. Uh, and we've, we've kind of got both, right. We increased, like you said, the money supply through stimulus checks, et cetera. And then at the same time, cause of COVID or, or for whatever reasons, we've had supply chain issues, goods haven't been replenished at stores, all those types of things. So we're kind of getting double whammy right now with that. That that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, I mean, we went into this pandemic, we shut everything down. So we somewhat artificially, um, you know, like, don't get me wrong. I understand why we did, why we did that. But in a lot of ways, we artificially created, uh, a deflationary economy, a bad economy. You know, we did that to ourselves. We, we chose to do that. It wasn't because of some sort of, um, systemic issue or credit bubble or something that, uh, you know, naturally came up through a free market. It was literally just us saying, all right, this is a done. And then we turned around and we said, okay, so since people are now hurting, um, we need to, we need to pump a whole bunch of money into the economy. So what happens is, um, the, the federal reserve is in charge of, you know, expanding that money supply and contracting that money supply. And basically the way they do it is they go out into the market and they will purchase, um, they'll purchase bonds, treasury notes or mortgage-backed securities, and they'll put that on their balance sheet as a purchase. Um, And then the money that they did that with technically doesn't exist, right? But they're, so they're, they're taking money that they've created out of thin air, and then they're buying uh, securities with it. And that pushes money into the economy. That that was my exact question. So they're, you know, maybe previously they did actually print the physical money, but now it's almost 
things are just, is, is it moving to digital? Or are they literally just re- creating this in the balance sheet and wherever they're kind of tracking and keeping this ledger? And then they're just pumping, you know, putting it into the markets and exchanging it for the bonds, which now becomes money in the market that starts to be spent and move around, et cetera. Cor- correct. Um, so I, I would love to, I wish I, I had somebody who is a much more technical economist on here that I could ask this, like get really, really technical on it. But my understanding of it is, you know, it's, it's almost think of it just like a, you know, kind of a phony ledger, um, entry. It's like, okay, we're going to, we are now purchasing all these securities and we're putting them on our balance sheet. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're taking, we're putting, uh, we're giving, you know, banks the ability to loan this money now, uh, through, through a balance sheet entry. So it's, it's the long and short of it is like, again, I wish I could bring somebody on here to explain the like nitty gritty technical and I will, I'll get somebody on here who can explain the nitty gritty technical side of things on it. But think of it just like it's, it's fake money. It's phony money. Um, or it's money that doesn't exist. It's not necessarily phony money. When they say it's real, it becomes real, but it's money that doesn't exist that they're using now to purchase securities. And when they make that purchase, then the money does exist. If that makes sense. Um, yeah, it makes, makes a ton of sense. It also makes sense as to why people are super passionate about Bitcoin <laughs> because you can't, <laughs> right, you can't just right. make it out of thin air, you know, it's right. big supply over a course of time. So that's super fascinating. Yeah. And, and if you think about it, so, um, you know, fiat currency, which is that that's the system that we're in. We're in a fiat currency system and fiat basically, uh, basically means, you know, it's, it's money by decree. Um, so it is decreed to be real by your governmental institutions. And then, you know, everybody's just supposed to, to take that and run with it. Right. Um, compared to being on a gold standard or being on a Bitcoin standard, you know, you're tied to something that's actual tan- actually tangible and can't just be manipulated and decreed. Um, so, you know, that's kind of the big difference. And that's why this stuff gets, why you can have hours and hours and hours of conversations about this stuff because it's so tricky because the rules of the game, um, you know, can, can kind of be ever changing. Yeah, that's super, that's super, super interesting. And so the Fed is, you know, focused on price stability, employment, they can pump money into the markets, um, you know, or buy back and take money out as they increase or decrease the supply is the purchasing of those bonds. Is that what you were referring to as the quantitative easing or, or is it easing or is that something, uh, is that a little bit different? Yeah. So that's just, that's like the mechanism of, of executing the quantitative easing. I mean, that's, that's really, that's QE, right? Um, gotcha. Fe- Federal Reserve attempts to boost economic output by purchasing a number of long-term securities in the open market, right? So QE, quantitative easing, they're going out and they're buying and they're buying um, securities with money that they don't actually have. They're just willing it into existence and purchasing securities with it. And then they put it on their balance sheet. So their, their money... So their balance sheet expands and then the money supply out in the real economy expands. And then um, the if they do QT, so quantitative tightening, then all they're doing is they're taking those securities and they're selling them back into the market. Um, And when they do that, they're taking money that was out in the world 
and they're basically um, eliminating it from being out in the world, right? So they're they're taking money that was out there circulating, and they're uh, selling those bonds and taking that money back, and and um, think of it almost like throwing your dollar bills in a trash can in a trash fire, right? Like they're <laughs> literally just burning the money; it doesn't exist anymore. Now it's uh, now there's a smaller money supply. So it's just the way that they expand and contract the money supply. Um, now that that doesn't always result in um, it doesn't always result in consumer prices going up in value. Though there's this kind of third element that sits out there, which is uh, velocity of that currency or velocity of that money. You know, it has to be circulating in order for it to drive those prices up. So. You know, the the money has to be chasing specific things, specific goods to really drive prices up and result in what people think of as inflation, which is, you know, prices increasing. Right. What's what's some examples of that? Like, would that be is that like cars, houses, like what? Literally everything like you can have lots of different prices, lots of different inflation. So um, kind of the way that I think that it's broke down you know, 2008 compared to today is in 2008, they just did QE. So the fed just basically went out and bought, bought bonds, um, or bought long-term securities, you know, pump money into the market and, uh, or pump money into the system. And then banks, a, a lot of that money really only saw major corporations. Um, it, it really only hit, productive people out in in society and maybe that's not the right way to put it but um that's that's who it hit and and the result of that was was two things in my mind you know just and this is just the way that i see it but two things happened because of that thing number one was you know asset prices increased because um that's where the money started to chase that's what the money started to chase right it chased assets and it drove up asset prices. Thing number two was banks could now, or I'm sorry, corporations could now go borrow money at an extremely low rate and then use that to expand their businesses and become more efficient. And the net result of that was we actually had deflation in consumer prices because these corporations are going out there and becoming more efficient with the cheap money that they're able to get. Um, so the Fed's other, you know, the the other tool that they have is to raise and lower interest rates. And interest rates are typically how you uh, slow down or speed up an economy, right? So they lower the interest rates down to zero, and then they start buying long-term securities to keep those interest rates down to zero. And net result is um, cheap money. So lots of borrowing and credit expansion happens and people go out and they, and they, uh, or people and companies go out and they purchase assets or they improve their, their businesses. And that's kind of what happened in 2008. So, um, you, you got a question on that before I go to the difference between that and today? Yeah. No, 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 go, no, go ahead. I'll, I'll circle back. Uh, okay. So, yeah, go ahead. so when you compare that to what happened, what today looked like, Today, the same thing happened, right? We interest rates go to zero. We do an enormous amount of quantitative easing, um, but we also did this secondary thing, which was we 
did a lot of fiscal stimulus too. So the federal government actually passed bills for stimulus checks and for putting money into the normal consumer's pocket. And whether this is right or wrong or how you feel about this, um, the net result of what happened was people literally went out and bought TVs and shit like that, you know? And, and when you do that, that is a direct, that is a direct monetary attack on a finite amount of resource. So you have a finite amount of goods and you literally are throwing money at it that didn't exist before. You know, this was money that was not in people's pockets that you put in people's pockets. And now just the general, generally speaking, how people react with that is they go buy stuff with it. Right. And what they did was they went and bought consumer goods. Um, and that did two things. First off, more goods and services, um, or I'm sorry, more money chasing after the same amount of goods, but it also created, in my mind, it created some kind of nasty imbalances in the general economy that resulted in supply chain based shortages in things that you need. Um, you know, if you think about it, like if you think about simple open markets, uh, if you have a lot of money chasing after one specific thing, then that's going to push businesses to say, oh, I need to be producing that one specific thing, right? And and I don't think it's uncommon for you to have um, businesses move over and start looking at at trying to produce that specific thing rather than what they were doing before and and causing different different bottlenecks on the supply side. You know, and maybe that's not the biggest portion of that, but I definitely think that it's uh, that it it hurt it. It's super, it's super super fascinating. So in summary, basically in 2008, it was hey we we are gonna you know increase the money supply, but we're gonna do it through as you said, kind of giving money to you know quote unquote productive groups or organizations, which then kind of flows from there. So companies, corporations all that type of stuff. There really weren't general consumers. The everyday person really didn't exactly see that increase in money supply. Now what's happened because of COVID and the stimulus bills that have passed is we're also doing that where the increase in money supply is coming and corporations and things are doing that. But then also on the consumer side, we're getting checks directly into our bank accounts. And so now, you know, just everyday thing, right? Anything from, you know, deodorant, just any food, all these things, Thanksgiving dinners, are now going up because anyone can all of a sudden have, you know, an increase in their individual money supply and now afford to pay, you know, for these goods and chase after all these goods. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's, that, that pretty much sums it up. You know, just think of it as the difference between, um, you're lowering interest rates, 2008, you did QE, you lowered interest rates. Um, so people who were able to actually borrow and spend, borrow and spend because they had cheap money to go do that with. Now, when you compare that to a fiscal stimulus where you have federal government passing bills and then directly sending out stimulus checks, um, you know, you don't you don't need to qualify for that cheap money. Right. You just get it. And um, I think what happens is, you know, when you just get the money, you, you go spend it on consumer goods. I mean, gosh, man, you know, we, we turned on, 
we were in the process when the third or the second stimulus check came out, we were opening uh, three short-term rentals and I was down in, in uh, the Holden beach area. We're opening these rentals. We're, we do, we're doing our thing where we turn on uh, these rentals within a day. Right. And I hadn't pre-ordered TVs for them. So I run out to my local Walmart to go pick up a TV, which was just a simple thing to do in the past. And I find out that there's no TVs and I'm asking questions. I'm like, Hey, where are all the TVs? Well, everybody got their stimulus checks and they ran out and they bought TVs to the point where I'm trying to productively put on, bring on new, new assets into the market. Um, and I can't do it cause I don't have something simple like TVs. So, you know, direct stimulus checks resulted in direct increase in capital for ordinary people, literally anybody um, who received those checks going out and chasing a finite amount of goods and services compared to uh, low, low interest rates and people borrowing those low interest rates to become more productive out in the market. And and that's just, so to me, that's the big difference. And that's part of the reason um, to kind of get back to what we were talking about here. That's a big part of the reason that I think you're seeing a giant increase in consumer price inflation this time around where last time you didn't see that increase in consumer price inflation. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that, that makes a ton of sense. And and I know, uh, I think we were talking, you know, a couple of days ago or maybe earlier this morning about just the, the CPI and how it's at what, you know, 30 or 40 year highs. And that's kind of where you're tying that all together um, just based off of, all the consumer money that's now been flooded into the market. So it's, it's super fascinating for sure. Yeah. So I think that's a, that's a good transition point. Let's, let's jump back into, um, you know, what I brought up at the beginning of the podcast, which was we're going to talk about CPI and then we're going to talk about the FOMC meeting um, this week and, you know, what they said they did, we're going to do, whether that's actually going to help or it's not going to help and, and, you know, how that's really going to play out. So Friday, uh, I guess two Fridays ago at this point, um, we've got got November's CPI numbers. So uh, the consumer price index um, came out at six point six point eight. So six point eight percent. Think of that as as six point eight percent inflation. Um, if you want to if you want to look at it from that standpoint. Um, so if if two percent is you know what the target is, what the Fed's target is, um, obviously we're a lot more than that, right? So. Uh, 6.8 CPI is what came out. That is the worst CPI since the 70s. Um, and on top of that, we're not even measuring CPI the same way that we measured it in the 70s. If you actually go back and you change the way and you measure CPI the way that it was measured in the 70s, it's the worst CPI in history. Um, so today, uh, they do things like... Um, uh, they'll do substitution within the CPI. So b- basically the way the substitution works is, you know, if they say, if they're looking at steak as an example, um, and steak is now very expensive, they make the assumption that people just won't buy steak and eat steak. They'll go eat chicken. And if chicken hasn't changed a ton, then it's not considered consumer price inflation or it's not considered an increase in um, inflation in the real economy uh, 
because people just will substitute chicken for steak, right? So that's the assumption. In the 70s, that assumption was not made. You know, it just, uh, if steak went up, steak went up, and it was measured within that inflation. So, you know, I don't know exactly what the numbers are, and I'm not going to, not going to, um, not, don't, don't quote me on this, but I think we're talking somewhere in like the 15% range if you actually make the adjustment measure CPI the way it was measured back in the 70s. Um, but, you know, 6.8% obviously is, is the worst since the 70s, uh, even if you don't want to measure it in the way that it was measured in the 70s. And, you know, that basically means that we have a problem. I mean, that means that we're in a situation where when you go to the grocery store, things are going to be more expensive no matter how you cut it. And that's going to um, that's going to put put the pressure on people who on everybody, really. But where it primarily puts the pressure, it primarily puts the pressure on um, the middle class and working poor. I mean, honestly, that's where the biggest amount of pressure comes to when you have inflationary increases. So that's where we landed on the CPI uh, a couple of weeks ago. Is that, is that like a, that's a signal to, you know, is that a signal to consumers and the everyday person who's just kind of following the news, trying to figure out what's going on with inflation? Or is that a marker that, you know, the Fed's actually using and then they're making decisions from that? Like, how does that CPI number really play into the macro picture of everyone's decisions and thought processes around inflation? Uh, both. I mean, I think that's probably the cleanest measure of, of inflation that we've got that's out there. There's the purchaser's price index, which um, uh, I think the Fed probably looks at a little bit more and, as, and is actually probably a little bit more honest assessment of what uh, of what the real economy is seeing from an inflation standpoint. But consumer price index is really the number that, you know, measures um, the increase in a basket of goods that, you know, the everyday person is going to go out and buy. So typically that's what we're going to see as the measure of inflation out in the, in the real economy is that, uh, that CPI number. And that's the number that, you know, when they're, they're saying our target inflation is 2%, that really what they're saying is we're trying to keep CPI at 2%. Gotcha. That makes sense. So we, we have the CPI number. It's clearly, you know, extended beyond well beyond what it's, what we're trying to keep it at, you know, for the economy and, and healthy growth and all that. What's next? you know, how, how do we, how do we fix this issue? Yeah. So, um, the, the fed has their way of, of thinking that they can fix the issue and we'll dive into that next, but, uh, just kind of the way that they, they look at things. So, you know, um, I don't exactly know the date that it was, but, uh, fed chair Powell was getting, um, he was, uh, basically in the federal government in Congress getting, questioned about everything. And, and he made this comment that, you know, up, up to this point, he's been saying inflation is transitory, inflation is transitory, inflation is transitory. And basically what that means is, you know, everything that's happening here is completely supply side. So we have supply bottlenecks and that's driving up prices. And as soon as the supply bottlenecks clear out, then CPI is going to come down. Well, a couple of weeks ago, he's getting, getting questioned and he makes the comment that, I think it's time to retire the word transitory, you know, and that was kind of the big signal to everybody that um, it, I, I think everybody knew it already, but that was the big signal to everybody that, holy crap, the Fed actually finally admitted that there's a problem here. And this isn't just something that, you know, is just going to go away tomorrow. 
Yeah, that's really, that's really fascinating. So a lot of it was, you know, for, it, it was really based off of COVID and kind of the extreme situation and circumstances. And that's why everyone was thinking, okay, hey, this is kind of just more a temporary thing. Right. And now what we're acknowledging and realizing and even coming from the Fed, like you said, is this is clearly here to stay and clearly something that, you know, has has kind of weathered the storm and weathered, you know, the initial waves of COVID and things. And now we really have to figure out and address how we're going to fix this problem. Yeah, exactly. So he he finally admitted that, you know, there's um, this thing is not necessarily transitory. We need to retire that thought process because obviously there's consumer price inflation that's here that's going to going to stick around for a while and is going to have some um, some long term effects and that we need to do something about it, too. Right. So um, FOMC meeting was on uh, Wednesday. Uh, Wednesday at two o'clock, they came out and, uh, you know, said, we're not going to raise interest rates at all. Um, so one of the, so there's a few ways that you fight inflation, right? As far as the fed goes, uh, really there's only, there's only so many tools that they have to fight and inf- fight inflation. The first one is stop quantitative easing. And the second one is raise interest rates. Um, so, you know, those are their tools. Uh, so they came out on Wednesday, and they said, we're not going to raise interest rates, but we are going to double our taper of assets. Um, And basically, all that means is we're printing a lot of money, and we are going to print a little bit less than what we printed before. Um, So not we're going to stop quantitative easing, um, not we're going to raise interest rates, but we're going to slow down the amount of money that we pump into the economy at any given time. And that's their, that's their first step, right? So they're going to, they're basically just on their side, they're kind of going through like a, in a way trial and error, right? They're like, okay, Hey, we know the couple things we can do. Here's the first one we're going to do to try to start addressing this issue. We're going to see whatever the result is from that over X period amount of time, and then make a decision based off of that result. Is that the right way to look at it? Kind of a linear progression of, almost tests and trials to see how their decisions, you know, affect the overall economy. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a good way to, I think that's a good way to look at it. So it's like uh, the first thing that you do is you're going to try to slow down the amount of assets that you're purchasing until that spigot is turned off. Once that spigot's off and you're not purchasing any more assets, then you go to raise interest rates. um, And then you go to quantitative tightening. So you actually start selling, selling bonds back into the market and, and, uh, you know, um, burning that money per se, rather than expanding that money. So, so go ahead. Yeah. I was just, I'm, I'm trying to really, I feel like anytime I have general inflation, you know, conversations with folks, just everyday people out, you know, friends, family, whatever, it's like, they understand the high level concept of, you know, what inflation is over, you know, a lot of it is not a good thing. They know and can they know and feel right the the price inflation through gas through goods if they're buying a house all these things right so like how does the Fed coming out and saying hey okay now we're going to start you know double doubling our taper we're going to decrease the uh, amount of money that we're really pumping into the system how does that actually trickle back down to that consumer like what's the next step if you can take through a timeline you know the Fed makes this decision. Does that now mean that, you know, there's less money for corporations and banks to then now have to loan out? Or like, how does that, how does it all trickle back and start to really affect the prices and issues that, you know, the everyday consumer is seeing? So that's such a, that's such a great question. Um, And 
I would make the argument that in small amounts, it actually doesn't. It does nothing um, in small amounts. In large amounts, it absolutely does things. So when you start to raise interest rates, think about it this way. When you start to raise interest rates, you're reducing that that um, you're reducing the risk, the risk reward uh, factor for people who are out purchasing assets, people who have credit cards, people who, you know, any sort of credit that you have out in the market, like you are reducing the um, you're essentially reducing the purchasing power of those people because so let's think about it in terms of a house, right? If you have a 0% interest rate um, or for, to put it in real terms, say you have a 2% interest rate on your house, your, um, your purchasing power is pretty huge. Even if you don't make a lot of money, your purchasing power is pretty huge because it's because your monthly payment, because your monthly payment, when you factor in, you know, the, um, the interest rate and all that stuff, it's maybe what, like $300 less, right. than if it was say 4% or 5%, is that kind of what you're getting at? Correct. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So as those interest rates go up, um, as those interest rates go up, you're spending more money on interest and you're, you're so your purchasing power is less and your ability to uh, make those payments is just significantly less, right? So in turn, what happens is you don't go out to the market and bid houses up, right? Like if there's only if there's only 10 people that make enough money to buy a million dollar house um, at a 5% interest rate, but at a 2% interest rate, there's a hundred people that can buy a million dollar house. Well, what's going to happen? Yeah. I mean, it, it, the, the price is going to go up with the hundred people because there's the, more people bidding on it and trying exactly. to chase it and get it for sure. Exactly. More people are going to be bidding up that house and more people are going to be spending more money on it. So it's going to go up in price because of that. So you increase that interest rate. Well, now only 10 people are able to go after that house again at that point after that million dollar house. So what's going to happen to that million dollar house? you know, maybe ten, those 10 people have already bought a million dollar house. So when the million dollar house hits the market, well, the price is going to have to come down in order to find people who are actually capable of purchasing it. Right. And so, so that happens. That's the same thing that happens out there uh, in the world with literally everything. You know, if you're thinking about it in terms of like a credit card, like if people are going and buying their groceries on a credit card because they don't have the cash to do it, well, um, they can only buy so much with a, they can buy a lot more with a 10% interest rate than they can with a 20% interest rate on that credit card, right? So a lot of times to me, that's what, um, that's what starts to hurt things. And, and I, I think you'd be amazed when it comes to things as simple as like food how many people actually go out there and they finance that food rather than pay cash for it? It's like everybody, almost everybody does that. <laughs> it's very few people that go out and pay cash for their food. That's right? wild. That's wild. So, I still pay cash for mine. <laughs> I, I do too. Sometimes I finance it. I periodically I'll finance yeah. it. But like, um, people feel much more wealthy when, asset prices are soaring and their house is really expensive. The other thing that I'll say is I think you'd be amazed at how many people will go out and, you know, Oh, my, my house went up a hundred grand this year and they'll pull out that, that, uh, they'll refinance that house and, you know, Oh, great. Well, you know, now I've got an extra 50 K in my pocket. I'm going to go buy a boat and that drives up the prices of boats or I'm going to go buy a TV or I'm going to go do this or go do that. Well, that's because those, 
prices are inflated because of cheap money. Um, if that money is more expensive, then that correlates back to a decrease in, in prices because once again, you've got fewer dollars, you've got, uh, you've got a decrease in purchasing power and you can no longer go out and bid up those prices because of how cheap it is for you. So let's just like, let's, let's look at, at reality here. So, you know, I, I made the comment earlier where I said, well, in small amounts, I don't think it does anything. And I don't think that the FOMC, I don't think that their plan right now, oh, we're going to taper a little bit, is going to slow down consumer price inflation in any way, shape or form. If you go back to the 70s, so if you use this logic, if you say, okay, if we measured CPI the way we measured it in the 70s, we would have the highest CPA in history right now, CPI in history right now. Um, and if you start to think about it in those terms, then you realize, and then you look at interest rates coming out of the 70s into the 80s, interest rates went all the way up to 20%. Yeah, this in order to skyrocketed. break the back, in order to slow that inflation down, interest rates had to go to twenty percent. So the Fed came out and said, "Okay, we're going to taper. We're not going to stop QE, but we're going to taper our asset purchases." I mean, I, frankly, what that does to me is it maybe it maybe it uh, you know scares the stock market a little bit, and people um, you know people pull some of their money out of the stock market and start to get worried and tighten up a little bit. But does that actually result in a decrease in uh, consumer inflation? I absolutely not. I don't think so. How if it if it was, and I, I see your point there. If it was going to though, what would the actual mechanics of it be? Like I, I'm trying, like how you know the the, the Fed de- starts decreasing the money, you know, tapering off the money supply and decreasing it compared to what they were doing. How like how does that then you know how like that affects banks, right? Like I'm trying to really get a clear, like linear progression. Okay. The fed makes this decision, which impacts this decision and kind of a network effect from there. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. And it's kind of, honestly, it's kind of a hard thing to explain because it's fr- frankly, a lot of it's just kabuki theater, right? Like you're just yeah. convincing, you're convincing people out there that things are getting tighter. So people start to, to tighten up and start to pull back. Well, and that's, that's what I think is frustrating for people sometimes, right? Is like how, you know, everyone understands a high level. Okay. Interest rates are going to go up. And then most ge- people in general, even if you just listen to like, you know, CNN or Fox news or any news station out there, everyone starts talking about it and, and everyone kind of understands at a high level of, of what starts happening. But it's just interesting to, that what, like, it's not as, you know, linear as, as we think it is this kind of black, black no. box of, of just kind of ideologies and, and mindsets that are being pushed and narratives that are being pushed uh, onto, you know, millions yep. and millions and millions of people. So it is super fascinating. V- very much so. And I mean, I think if you go back to the beginning of beginning of the pandemic, like we came out with these, we came out with this huge QE program. We dropped interest rates from two and a half percent to zero huge QE program. Um, and we started passing bills to, to, give stimulus checks and, you know, people who understand what that meant knew that the result was going to be CP, CP, consumer price inflation. Like people knew that that was going to happen despite the fact that it was literally just two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago at this point, 
that the Fed finally admitted that CP, that consumer price inflation wasn't going to be transitory. Like they just admitted it. But people who understand how what? these these kind of mechanisms work knew back in in early 2000, 2020 that we were going to have a problem. It was just mm-hmm. a matter of when is that problem going to start to rear its head. And if you ask my question, if you ask me, I mean, I think we're just at the beginning of this thing. You know, I think that we're going to have um, we're going to have some uh, some years, maybe even a decade of of consumer price inflation. And I could be totally wrong. You know, and the and the Fed could come out. The Fed could come out and they could raise interest rates like crazy and uh, put a halt on this thing. Or it could be that the economy just is not as strong as what we're all led to believe that it is. And uh, because of that, um, things things tighten up. And there's this whole other dynamic that we could spend another two hours talking about, which is... um, how the commercial banks are lending and how interbank lending is happening because that plays a big role in that too. And there's not a lot of that going on right now. Um, so that would make an argument that, you know, maybe, maybe the CPI isn't going to hold up real high like it is today, but um, that's a super technical uh, argument that we could, we need to bring somebody else on to, <laughs> to make, not just me. Um, I, I do. I do want. I do have a. I think I have a question around that. It was sitting in the back of my brain. I have so many questions around all this stuff because it is something that I think is, you know, to your point, you said right. You know, you just said the word a decade, right? You know, I'm 24 years old. Yeah. Right. A decade of my life puts me at 34. The peak time of, you know, whatever it is, traveling, building a career, buying a home, starting a family, getting married, all these things, right? So I have to be and anyone else. Everyone else has their own 10 year plan, right? If you're 55 right? 10 years from now is, Hey, I'm probably going to be retiring. How do I think about my retirement strategy and all these things? So I think understanding this concept and understanding what can be happening, you have to have strategies and things in place to address it because we're talking about trends and things and decisions that the fed are going to be making over the next decade that are going to really play an important role on your savings and your life and your quality of life based off how you manage that wealth. Is that a fair, I mean, it's that it's a serious thing, right? I mean, this is like, this is very serious for decision making oh. and, and how people are structuring and planning out, you know, wealth creation and wealth preservation over the next decade of their lives. Oh, no, no question. I don't think there's any question whatsoever on that. I mean, I completely, I completely agree with you. Like, you know, if you, if you sit back and you think about it, um, if I, if all I do in my life is, you know, say I, I work a job and I buy zero assets and my wages aren't increasing at the same pace as inflation. What's happening to me? I'm getting, I'm getting squeezed. My quality of life it's is decreasing, decreasing every year. Yeah, it's point. absolutely I can, decreasing. I can buy less. I can go on a less vacation. You know, instead of a two-week yep. vacation to the beach with my family, I can only go on a one-week vacation because I have you know, like, you know, less purchasing power year after year. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is absolutely decreasing. So. Um, and that's something that you got to be you got to be conscientious of. Now, to play the flip side of, to play the flip side of that, if you start to go into it into if you have some sort of deflationary or some if it's stable, it's not typically not that big of a deal. If you're deflationary, technically you're increasing in your purchasing power um, in that same scenario, but you also run the risk of not having that job anymore, <laughs> right? So things being stable is is yeah. a relatively important thing and, and a pretty doggone, um, pretty doggone important thing to happen in order for you to be 
to be able to um, easily plan things out if if that's the lifestyle that you choose, right? I'm just going to I'm going to work and I'm going to get a a two percent raise a year, and and that's going to be my life. Um, you know, in an inflationary standpoint, you get squeezed pretty bad. Yeah, I mean, I, all you got to do is talk to you know anyone. I mean, even just talking with my mom, who's a school teacher, right? And you know, especially federal workers or people like that who don't have as many of incentives or yearly bonuses, etc. It's just crazy. I mean, everyone's feeling it this year. I do have uh, you know a question. I want to walk a little bit down the path of what we were just talking about with the interest rates and some of the commercial banking, et cetera. Cause I want to, I, I want to pr- try to provide some sort of like tangible meaning to folks when they hear the word, you know, z- zero or near zero interest rates. Cause people hear like, Oh, okay. The Fred, you know, is dropping the rates to zero. And then they know that overall, okay, Hey, that means, you know, if I'm going to go buy a, a house right now and I'm going to get a 30 year mortgage, they know that whatever the rate was, you know, a couple of months ago or a year ago, it's going to be lower now that the Fed's dropped that rates. How does that actually translate, though, right? So, if the Fed says, "Hey, we are going to raise rates," how does that impact, you know, the actual process of of purchasing real estate and like the lending of money? You know, is it is the Fed they raise rates and then that now makes it, you know, instead of it being near zero for a bank to go get, you know, millions and millions of dollars to then lend out to consumers to buy homes. Does that now mean that their interest rate at which they're borrowing money is going up? And so now they have to charge more to consumers. Is that the right way to look at that? Or how, how does that process work? Yeah. I mean, I think, it, yeah, I, I definitely think that it is. It just gets, it gets passed directly to consumers when that, when that happens. I mean, it, it absolutely gets passed directly to consumers. So, um, let's talk about, we'll talk about a house and then we'll talk about uh, like a credit card, right? So if you have a, if you locked in a 30 year fixed rate mortgage at 2%, um, when interest rates were at zero, uh, then you are effectively hedged against two things. You're hedged against inflation because as the money inflates, you actually are paying off that mortgage with cheaper dollars. Um, and number two, you're hedged against that interest rate rising because you're locked in at 2%, right? Now, let's just use something that's a little bit different here. So let's talk about like a uh, a five-year arm, like a 20-year mortgage that's on a five-year, uh, that resets every five years. So basically what happens there is five, you're locked in at a rate for five years. At the end of that five years, then you adjust to whatever the market is. So if at the beginning of that five years, interest rates are at zero, um, let's just, for sake of ease, let's just say that your interest payment is a hundred bucks and five years down the road, now the feds raise that interest rate up to, let's say 5%. And uh, your new mortgage interest rate is now 8% um, or 7%. Well, now you have a $500 a month interest payment instead of a $100 a month interest rate payment. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, uh, that, that can put you in a really, really, really tough spot when it comes to that. Now, when it comes to like credit cards and stuff like that, it, I, I'm pretty sure it cycles like every month. Like every month they're just, they re, uh, 
you know, it's almost, it's pretty, it's pretty instant. Like, okay, my, my interest rate on my credit card is 15% and the fed raises rates by, by a percent. And now it's a 20% interest rate on that credit card. So like it happens pretty instantaneously. Um, once, once things start, start going that way because the bank banks just pass it through immediately. Like banks don't necessarily get, they, the only way that they really get hurt by it is maybe they're not making as many loans. Um, so they don't write as many loans and they get hurt by doing that because the interest rate is higher. But as far as who gets hit by that interest rate increase, consumers do immediately. I would, yeah, I would, I would really, I love those examples. I'm going to push one level deeper when that interest rate on the fed is 0% and then the banks are getting their money from the fed. Are they getting it at 0% or like how, is there a, a, a middle market in between? Like how, who, because what I'm, I'm trying to just understand and I, I feel like it's there. It's like someone is making out like a bandit, right? And who, like, who is making out like a bandit where interest rates are at all time lows and, or just, just very low in general, right? Near zero. And someone's getting really, really, really cheap money. And then also, you know, increasing and passing, like you said, that, like you said, passing that on to the consumers and making that gap of profit in between. Like, what's that? Are banks getting this money at near zero, you know, interest rates from the Fed or who, like, how does that work? Uh, yeah. So it's all, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to dive too deep into it because there's people who know this way better than me. But, um, the banks are setting their interest rates based off of based off of what the um, based off of different forms of, of, uh, of bonds. Right. So there's a a two year, five year, 10 year, 30 year bond. And I think a lot of times mortgage rates are pulled off of, don't quote me on this. I think a lot of times mortgage rates are pulled off of a five year note. Um, I'm not positive about that. Though, and that's, and that's yeah. how, that's how it ties back to the fed though, right? Is the, the way that the fed, you know, interacts with, with the markets and, and, and the banks is that they are purchasing or selling those bonds. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah, it, it definitely is. And you say, you know, who are the people who make out in these situations? Like <laughs> in a low interest rate, high inflationary situation, the people that are, that make out like bandits are the people who own assets. I mean, just plain and simple, you know, because yeah. the asset prices just surge. Yeah, your asset prices go up and you can lock in low rate financing for them. So like think about a let's just I mean, just take a step back and think about a rental property, like just a simple rental property, right? If I go buy a $100,000 rental property and I finance that rental property, I put 20% down on that 100K. So I put $20,000 down and I finance that rental property at 2% or 3%. Um, my mortgage payment on that rental property is like, it, it's nothing. It's like 400 bucks, 400, 500 bucks. And uh, please, please, everybody, don't don't quote me on my math here. I'm not actually doing it in my head. I'm just throwing numbers out there. But let's say that that, that mortgage is 400, 500 bucks, right? And I got it locked in for 30 years, okay? Well, on day one, I go out and I rent the property. Market rent is $1,000, right? So I rent the property at $1,000. So, okay, I'm making a decent spread on that. 
But over time is when the real magic happens, right? Because if consumer price inflation is 10%, well, I'm raising my, my mortgage, or I'm, not my mortgage, I'm sorry, I'm raising my rents by 10% a year or more, 12% a year. So, but your, but your mortgage is fixed. So your profit gap just continues to increase every time. Just continues to increase. You know, you go out 30 years and maybe I'm charging $5,000. I'm charging $5,000, $7,000 a month for that mortgage or for that rent. Um, and my mortgage payment is still $400. Right. Unbelievable. Yeah, it is. And then, you know, the price of that, the price of that asset itself is going up dramatically based on that as well. And and like people hear those numbers and they think, they think, oh, well, Norm, you're, you're crazy. You're crazy, right? You know, we'll never see that bull crap. Yeah, we will. I mean, that absolutely is something that, that, that we'll see. And all you have to do to understand that is go back and look at what, um, look at what things cost in the seventies, you know, look at what your rents were in the seventies, look at what your rents were before the yeah, 70s, yeah. before we went through the large inflation that we went through in the seventies, before we went through the large inflation that we went through in the, in the forties, like just look at pre-inflation post-inflation when we went through yeah. periods of high inflation and look at what people were paying for rents, look at what people were paying for food, look at what people were paying for houses. And you'll start to, the picture will start to clear up. So, you know, um, your thousand dollars rents today, uh, being seven thousand dollars in thirty years. I mean, like that's people have a really hard time wrapping their heads around that, but that is very, very, very possible. It's 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 definitely possible. And just one more example I'll give. I remember talking with my mom, and she would talk about how you know thirty, forty years ago you could get a candy bar for a, a nickel or a dime, right? And uh, you know now it's like two bucks three bucks, depending on the candy bar you're buying. And, and then that's a small example in terms of, yeah, well, it's like, it's two bucks. It doesn't matter that much. But the reality is, is that's like a, what, 40, 50 time, uh, you know, times per, you know, increase multiple on, on just a, something like a candy bar. And it's not like it's just happening with candy bars, as you said, right. It's, it's extrapolated out across the entire economy and rents and goods and all those things. So we've, we've dove a little bit into it already of like, you know, clearly that, that example was a good way of structuring. Okay. Well, how can you, in a way, hedge inflation or benefit from the inflation that doesn't ha- happen? Like if inflation is going to happen, how can I, you know, kind of make it to be something that works for me instead of just continuously hurts me? What What are some of the high level, you know, concept strategies in terms of ways to hedge against inflation or, or ways so that it doesn't really break the bank at the end of the day or just fully decrease your purchasing power? Yeah, yeah, good, good, uh, good question. Um, so to me, it, it falls within the realm of just hard assets, right? Uh, you have to be aware of what interest rates are doing because I'll say this, you know, I, I talked to, I gave the example on rents and I think that example holds through regardless of what interest rates are. If you kind of lock that 30 year mortgage in, but that being said that if interest rates were to go to 20, 20%, um, you know, if the Fed really made their mind up about fighting inflation and they really did something about it and interest rates went to 10 percent, you could technically see. You could technically see. Um, you know, maybe not an increase in the the house itself. 
right? An increase in appreciation on the house, but you would still see those rent increases because inflation, you know, I think people, when, especially when they hear the word transitory, and I'll get back to your question here in a second, James, sorry, I'm going on another tangent, but when, when people hear the word transitory, they think, oh, well, prices are going to go up and then they're going to go back down. And the reality is that's not true. That's not true at all. What they're talking about is the rate of inflation. So they're saying the rate of inflation is going to go up and then the rate of inflation is going to come back down and we won't inflate as fast. But that does not change those new price points. It's a new bo- so it's by- a new bottom line, right? It's like you you've just raised the, the average expectation of price of goods, houses, everything, right? That's what you're saying? Yeah, that's what that's exactly what I'm saying. So the $2 candy bar that you're paying for now is going to be too like it's not going to go back down to to five cents like that's it unless there's some like insane increase in efficiency when it comes to producing candy bars um you know that's your new baseline and then you're just going to increase in prices from there the question is are you going to increase increase that price by two percent per year or are you going to increase it by 12 percent per year that's the difference right there so like you, you know these high prices that we have today based on the 6.8 percent cpi like they're here to stay they're not they're not going away. They're the new baseline. Now, does that mean that asset prices could still go up and down? You know, could you still have a housing crash? Sure, you could. Sure. Could your stock market crash? Sure. But more than likely, your candy bar is still going to cost two bucks. So, um, jumping back to your question, now, now that I got that out of the way, and then I want to go, I actually, I want to go on one more quick rant here. Um, that's what, one of the reasons why we got to be very, very cautious. And we have to understand these things when it comes to, to passing bills and, uh, and, um, you, you know, on a federal level, when we pass stimulative bills, especially when we claim they're for, you know, the middle class or the working poor or the poor, um, most of the time that just flat out is not true because it's new money being pushed into the market that is going to drive up prices that's going after finite goods and services and the net result is more pain for the middle class and the working poor rather than less pain because of that because of those bills passing so we just we got to be conscientious of that stuff as we <laughs> as we think about it anyway i'm i'm done with that i'll get back to your question ask me that question again james i apologize no 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 worries i, th- I think those are such important tangents and i think that especially with what we've seen with covid i can you know everyone was so excited to get a stimulus check well guess what no one's excited now about the prices of everything and and how everything is more expensive and, and harder to buy or harder to come by because there's just so few goods, but there's still so much money. So all extremely valid, important points. My, my question was just really around how can, you know, folks who are trying to be aware, right? I, that's like one, well, the key step here, I think, is just being aware of the situation, right? It's, it's acknowledging that, hey, this could be a 5, 10, 15 year or longer effect on my life. And I want to start grabbing this by the horns and trying to do something about it. So for people who are trying to really understand ways to combat inflation or hedge against inflation so that they don't get hurt as much by the end of the day by it, like how does someone do that? What are some just decisions or or steps or investments that people can start making to be aware of so that they can really 
you know, start doing something about it. Okay. Yeah. So, I, I mean, my thought on this is that you, um, you buy hard, hard assets, you know, and, and a hard asset, um, could, could even be something as simple as, so you, you buy hard assets, you focus on things like, um, things that hold their value, like, uh, gold, silver, um, industrial metals, industrial based commodities, um, real estate, Bitcoin, things like that, that have, have, that are are really a hedge against, um, really a hedge against a devaluing dollar or an expanding money supply. Um, Hard goods are the things that I think uh, kind of preserve, try to preserve that wealth. Art is another one of those examples. Um, But probably like the, the most simple thing that you can do in terms of a hedge against inflation is, is a more, is actually go get a 30 year mortgage. Believe it or not, like we could be in a position where potentially we could be in a position where like the house might not be the asset, right? But the mortgage is because you have that low rate locked into place and because you're paying off a cheap rate with higher real inflation. So if you're paying 2% for the money, but the money supply is inflating at 7%, well, you're actually making a 5% spread there. Does that make sense? What I just said there? Yeah, I think, I think it does. I know we've talked about it before. So for someone, you know, let's maybe paint the scenario for someone who already has one primary home residence and maybe they're like, you know, Hey, I have 50 grand, a hundred grand in the bank. They want to go put down 20% on a house. They can lock in now, you know, say 3% or for sake of numbers, right? 3%. You're saying now let's fast forward 15 years from now, interest rates are at 10%, but they still have that 3% because they're locked in on a 30 year, you know, fixed. So they've actually gained in a way that gap of those two rates, maybe not in actual value yet because they still own the house, but at least in terms of just purchasing power or the ability to execute on that, that sale and kind of leverage that. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So that, and that, and so there's, there's two sides to that. So what you just said, but let's just say that they don't raise interest rates at all. Right. So say interest rates stay at zero for the next 10 years, which um, I kind of fall in more in that camp that the fed's not actually going to fight inflation than that they are. But let's just say that things, you know, stay stagnant. Right. And they don't raise interest rates. Well, inflation runs hot. And if, your purchasing power is decreasing um, by a more rapid rate than what you are paying for that financing. Like you still have that spread that you make if assuming that you are, that you're renting that property, right? Assuming that the rent that you're collecting for that property is going up due to that inflation, but your payment is locked in place then there's a spread to be made there. So it just it goes back to the exact example that I made a little while ago, where you're paying four hundred dollars or a hundred dollars for your um, for your interest on your mortgage, but you're collecting seven thousand dollars in rent. And uh, you know, it, again, I want to I want to disclaim one more time. You know, people, please go out, do your own research, um, talk to financial advisors. Actually, go seek out professional advice when it comes to this stuff. We're just discussing this, and this, these are the types of things that we do. We are not recommending that you guys do anything. 
Um, but these are, are kind of the thoughts that go through, through our heads when we, um, you know, look at these things. Um, so that, that's the real estate example. I mean, the other thing that you can do is you just buy hard assets that as the money devalues, as the currency devalues, you know, they hold their value and, and by holding their value, they appreciate value, right? So if I pay, if I pay $1,800 for a piece of gold and then the currency, um, the currency devalues dramatically, you know, that piece of gold will be worth significantly more money in terms of dollar value. It doesn't mean that it's technically worth more in real life, right? But in terms of that currency, it's worth significantly more. And then, I mean, that makes a ton of sense. And I think that those tangible examples are just good because I think that there's a lot of people out there. And, you know, even if you think about someone my age, right, um, you know, in their 20s or even probably their early, early 30s, um, you know, this is kind of the first time they've been in a career, they've been making money, maybe they bought a house, maybe they're thinking about it. And it's the first time they've had to really kind of pause and make decisions based off this because, you know, growing up and kind of the timeline that we came through, we weren't really old enough to understand the 2008 crash um, and the effects of what the Fed did there and how that affected things. Kind of COVID is really this first and this increase in money supply now is really the first time that this, you know, that my generation is dealing with it. So I think it's super important to be aware and just really understand the things that are out there and the, the asset classes that exist, right. That we preach all the time about and how to diversify across them so that you can hedge, hedge against inflation and, and maintain your value and, and just continue to build. Yeah, so I, I totally agree, James. I mean, I think, um, I think probably your easiest hedge against inflation is to find hard assets that you can get your hands on and you can spend your money on, you know, don't go buy the, don't go buy the newest TV because then you're feeding into inflation, but go buy something that is a hard asset that's going to hold its value as that currency decreases in, in value. I would, I, honestly, I would say for something else and, and uh, people are going to hate me for saying this because it kind of, it makes the situation almost worse from a, from a corporate standpoint um, and from a business standpoint, but it, it's the truth. Uh, and, and that is, you know, if you're a wage earner, if you're out there and you're earning a wage, an hourly rate, a salary rate, go out and see what the market is actually bearing. Because, um, you know, again, people are going to hate me for saying this, but like, if I'm getting paid $7 an hour and I go out and I look at the market and the market's bearing $20 an hour, then is it wise for me to continue to get paid $7 an hour? It's probably not. Not wise at all. Not one bit. That's for sure. I think that's, I mean, we've seen that, you know, even with, um, you know, I'll touch a little bit on some stuff, you know, with Iconic is we're hiring on folks, right? And even just in the short time frame, as an example for folks, when I graduated college, um, you know, about two years ago, right, the average salary compensation for, let's just say, even a software engineer, right, just from then to now, in terms of the market rate right now that folks are paying for software engineers to come on, it's insane increases, right? But if I'm an, if I was an engineer that was already in the market uh, back in 2018 or 2019, right, I'm probably not getting paid or haven't been, have, you know, haven't had the increases that a new person right now getting out of college is going to see just because of how high inflation is. So I think that's super important and a great point by Norm to, to be aware of that and, um, you know, have those discussions, get the temperature check of what the market is, 
you know, really make sure that you're, you're on par with that market rate, because if you are, then at least that increases the gap and helps you, you know, maintain some purchasing power, still be able to get the goods that you want to get, and hopefully also be able to take some of that money and, you know, be able to hedge against inflation through some, some of the investments and different, you know, strategies that we just talked about. So great point, Norm, really love. Yep, definitely. And I, th- I think we'll bring this thing in for a landing there. You know, we've talked, uh, <laughs> we've talked around so many different subjects here today. And, and I think we've given everybody a pretty good broad base on, you know, what this stuff means and what it is and, and how it, uh, you know, not necessarily technically works, but in simple terms, how things, how things work. Uh, James, man, I think that we could bring some people on and just dive into, we, we covered so many topics here. We could pick one of a hundred different things that we talked about and spend an entire episode just on, <laughs> just on each of the individual ones here in the future. And I definitely think that we, that we will. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, everyone listen, I hope this guy, just hope it added value for you guys. Um, you know, Norm and I, as, as you could tell, are, are passionate about this topic. Um, you know, and even when I went on my little rant earlier, it's something super important to be thinking out. It affects your life, your everyday life now, your everyday life 10 years from now and beyond. So be aware of it. Um, hopefully we added some value and gave some good perspective. And as always, we appreciate you guys, um, you know, tuning in and listening. Always visit platcapital.co to just see new resources we post online. Um, and also some new, you know, news we'll have dropping in probably a week or two, maybe a little longer around the real estate fund that we mentioned. We've got a lot of great stuff there. Um, so just excited to, to be able to add value to you guys. Hope you all have a great rest of your Saturday and thanks for tuning in to the pure capital podcast.